And the second part of that is, and I always say this, my job as president is to be disruptor in chief. My job is, uh, is not steady as she goes or no waves. My job is to challenge the fundamental assumptions of higher ed, of the, our institution, and, and force a dialogue around why can't we do this? You know, so, so think of it this way. Why can't we have 100% retention? Why can't we have 100% graduation rate? So challenging the institution to rethink assumptions, disrupting the existing uh, uh, thought processes is I think one of my most important roles as president. I would argue it's most, one of the most important roles of any university president particularly in this day and age. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You. I'm so pleased to be joined today by the president of one of the fastest growing universities in the US, Dr. Mark Lombardi. Dr. Lombardi has served as president of Maryville University since 2007, and in that time, Maryville has achieved unprecedented growth and has earned national distinction for leading an innovative revolution in higher education. Nationally, Dr. Lombardi has been recognized as a thought leader in the higher ed revolution, and he is frequently called upon to address Maryville University's significant advances in educational access technology, partnerships, and developing an individualized path for student learning and success. He is also the co-author of the recently released book, Pivot, A Vision for the New University, and we're going to be talking about this book uh, during our conversation. There is so much more that I can say about his background, but I'm very eager to jump into the conversation. So we will share his extensive bio in the show notes, and I encourage listeners to take a look. So, Mark, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we like to begin by learning something about our guests. And I have read that you fell in love with the Academy the very first day that you walked into an international relations class as a graduate faculty member. And here you are today as a university president. So can you tell us something about the backstory for your journey to the presidency? Sure. Uh, well, I was a first-year graduate student at Ohio State, and in and those days, and still true in those big research one institutions, uh, they I, there was a slip of paper in my mail slot, and it said, "You're going to teach international relations uh, this fall. Good luck." And that was the extent of my <laughs> teacher training, and uh, and so you had to do it on the fly. You had to learn how to do a syllabus, pick readings, et cetera, et cetera. And and from the first day I walked in, I fell in love with it, and so I pursued. Uh, degrees in international relations and political science, uh, did a lot of research, first, uh, you know, focusing on the Soviet Union and later on U.S. foreign policy in the third world, spent a lot of time overseas in, in Western and Southern Africa, as well as uh, Europe and Latin America and other places. And so I was passionately on that road as a professor. And uh, many, as I ended up at the, taught at Ohio State, taught at Wittenberg, ended up at the University of Tampa. And uh, as often happens, you know, the, the, the president of uh, University of Tampa asked me and others to form an international uh, uh, student office, an international office, uh, basically with no money, and said, <laughs> uh, you got to go out and raise the money, and, and we did. 
And, you know, when you start raising money, it gets other people's attention. And I, I ended up in other administrative roles and different levels and then, uh, and then had the good fortune to, to sort of pursue other administrative jobs and wound up for a time in New Mexico as a vice president of academic affairs and then, and then ended up here at Maryville University and it's been a dream come true. But I didn't start out wanting to be a president. I started out... Uh, wanting to teach and and wanting to uh, to pursue my passion, which was international politics, and uh, but you know I'm um, I tell people this I'm basically uh, I've never been diagnosed I'm probably ADD or ADHD, which means I like doing thirty things in a day at once doing and that's the description of a president's job is doing thirty things at once and uh, and jumping around from from item to item or crisis to crisis. So it turned out that whatever was going on with my personality, I think fit this job well. You know, I've heard that from other presidents. So I think there there is indeed something something to that. So now for listeners who are not familiar with Maryville, what can you tell us about the institution and its mission? And in particular, what from your perspective, what sets it apart from the 4,000 plus other institutions uh, that are out there? Well, I mean, a little bit of background. We're actually celebrating our 150th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So this is a university that's really rooted in St. Louis and the region. Long history of providing uh, a really good liberal arts education and then with a professional uh, focus in the healthcare professions and business and in a number of areas. Uh, and we're, you know, just about 11,000 students, and as you mentioned in the intro, growing very, very fast. We're the, now the fourth fastest growing private university in the country. But really what sets this institute, and we offer comprehensive degrees, bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, et cetera. What sets the institution apart though is that we use some of the most sophisticated learning diagnostics. We use the technologies, be it iPad, be it AI, blockchain and a number of others to really provide a personalized learning experience, an individualized one for every student, and then delivering it on multiple platforms uh, where students can work both in an online and an on-ground uh, settings. And I think that really uh, has been part of the reason that we have catapulted in the way we have in terms of growth and profile. We're taking the most cutting edge technologies and applying them immediately in both student learning and student service and success. And, uh, and we've done that, uh, the, what we've done differently than every other university in the country, and I can say this, is we do that quickly. We move fast, we innovate fast, we take risks. So we don't have committees uh, like I used to serve on, uh, sitting there for three years trying to decide whether or not to implement blockchain, for example. We implemented blockchain in a matter of weeks and uh, are continuing to do so. So we move very, very fast. At first, the culture and the community uh, had a little bit of whiplash with that and uh, weren't used to it. But now we've kind of gotten used to it over the last five, six, seven years and, uh, and have embraced it. And so in that sense, uh, we're, we're able to get out, out ahead of the pack pretty quickly. Mm, that certainly is unique. And I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit more about that uh, later on in the conversation. Um, a couple of other distinctions that I thought were very interesting. You have been 
named as the number one overperforming university in the United States. I, I hadn't heard that ranking before, so, well, but it makes sense. <laughs> well, U.S. News came out with this a few years ago, and then they discontinued it, and they came out with it because what they wanted to capture was, okay, you know, in the U.S. News rankings, as we know, there's reputation score, and then there's how selective you are, and those those account for a lot of the the points and rankings and so forth. But what they also wanted to do is strip away those and look at schools where maybe people weren't as aware of them, but their graduation rates, their retention rates, these other markers were really, yes. really high. And when they did that, we came out, on, the, the two years that they did it, we came out on top both years. And I think they probably discontinued it because they figured we'd be on top every year. <laughs> Uh, so uh, at least I'd like to think that. But you had uh, a hold. You had a hold on that on that spot. <laughs> yeah, we may have. We may have. But I, you know, it was it was a great validation of, you know, the things that, as you know, as everyone who's worked in the academy, there are there are some really neat, amazing things being done at schools that people sometimes haven't heard of. You know, it's it's you you do a ranking and and it's uh you know it's stanford princeton yale yeah. harvard etc and it's always based on the same thing it's based on how many students they don't let in and mm -hmm. when you think about that it's uh shocking really that the rankings are so skewed towards what i would consider to be elitism at maryville we we have a focus on access and opportunity we believe that uh, you can't classify students when they're 16, 17, or 18 years old. You've got to give them access and opportunity and give them at least the, the chance to pursue a degree, particularly for students from underrepresented groups and, and people of color. And so, so our focus is on that access and opportunity, not on uh, excluding people. Which is so, so very relevant today, more than ever. Um, Absolutely. So. So I want to ask you, uh, again, from your perspective, as the person who's been at the helm over this incredible transformation, how you account when you're all by yourself and you're thinking through uh, the journey the institution has been on, how you account for the success that you have achieved, particularly given uh, the challenges facing similar colleges and universities during the same time frame. So, is there a particular strategy that you pursued? Are there a couple things that really stand out that to you have made the difference? Well, I think there's probably three things. Um, and, and again, as you you mentioned the book Pivot that I wrote with mm -hmm. uh, my colleague, Joanne Soliday, uh, a lot of our strategy is, is also found uh, in, in the pages mm -hmm. of that book. But there are three things that stand out. The first is the people. Uh, we, Maryville has always had a, a really a rich reservoir of faculty and staff talent that, uh, that, that didn't, quite, uh, um, didn't quite embrace the, the potential and the scope of where the university could be. So we, I, I was fortunate, I inherited a lot of great people and then we added people uh, to, that, to that mix, obviously. I think, so the people, you start with the people and, and a reservoir of talent. The second thing, was we, again, back to the culture part, we rejected the notion that universities had to move slowly, had to deliberate everything, 
and, and most importantly, had to reach a consensus before they moved. Uh, I, I think of consensus the same way I think of it as true love. It's a wonderful concept, but it, it's never really attainable. And so uh, uh, we, we didn't look for consensus. We didn't say, let's get 20 people in a room and, and we won't do anything until they all agree, because you can't get 20 people to agree on anything at a university. What we said was, this is a digital time, this is a changing environment, this is a, a, a digital revolution is happening with uh, s smartphones, iPads, and on and on and on. We've got to move quickly and seize opportunities. So the second part of that is we, we, we basically said we don't, we don't have the time or the, or the uh, luxury of waiting, we've got to seize opportunities. And what happened when we did that? was we seized on several opportunities. There was some resistance, but then when we did it and we were hugely successful because of it with enrollment and a number of other things, then what happened is people in the community who might've been a little skeptical said, hey, maybe there's something to this strategy of seizing, and, and I wanna be a part of seizing the next opportunity. I wanna be involved in this. And it, and it, and it mushroomed and into a whole, really the, the community for the most part embracing not only the initiatives we were on, but the speed with which we pursued them. And, and so that really changed the culture. And then the third thing was to continually, and I can't emphasize this enough, we live and our students live in, a, in an entirely digital experience and world. So we invested heavily over several years in bandwidth and connectivity in the idea that when you so on this campus you're holding a cell phone or an ipad on a wireless network you should be able to access whatever you want fast fast as you can have a class outdoors do all these things so we're we're really in the top 10 percent of wired connected campuses in the united states it's fascinating you know when you talk to someone of my generation about curb appeal you think about how a school or how a house looks and how it feels for students today, curb appeal is how fast does my cell phone download things? <laughs> how, can I get my Netflix shows wherever I am? Can I? That's the way they define it. And so we invested heavily in that, and it's made a huge difference uh, for us. So there are many other things I could point to, and as I referenced in the book, but I think those three things uh, kind of stand out. When I'm when I'm alone, that's what that's what comes up. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we're going to come back in a second, and I'm going to ask you to dig deeper in terms of the book. But before I do that, I want to ask you about uh, your personal statement about higher ed, which is very prominent in your bio. And I, I think that's a little unusual. Um, I can't remember the last time I came across uh, somebody's personal statement in, in a president's bio. And I do want to take a second to read it because I think it's a, a, it's a significant statement. And then I want to ask you um, to talk to us about it. So here is your statement. I believe in a new model for higher education, which removes barriers to learning. The digital age has brought the greatest democ democratization of knowledge since the Renaissance. Universities must harness the tools of this age to create access and opportunity for all students regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status. At Maryville, we are driving this dynamic model to transform higher ed at a pace more common in the entrepreneurial world than in academe. Using the power of data analytics and artificial intelligence, we focus our efforts on putting the student at the center of the learning process. We not only tailor academic experiences, 
based on students' abilities and learning styles, but we also provide Amazon-like service, leading to proven graduation and career placement outcomes. Wow, I, I love this statement. It resonates with me personally on so many levels, but um, can you tell us why you thought it was important, first of all, to draft a personal statement, and then how does this actually get operationalized at Maryville? Well, the, the per personal statement is part of my own philosophy that that to that all of us, not just presidents, presidents, professors, staff, everyone, mm -hmm. should really think uh, uh, deeply about why we're why you're doing what you're doing, mm -hmm. and and what you're trying to achieve. You know, uh, it, and that's not a job description. That's uh, that's found in HR. It really is about who you are and what you value. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a I'm a working class kid uh, from Ro Rhode Island. Um, uh, family, not many people in the family up until my brother and I had gotten a chance to go to college, valued education uh, greatly, but also value the opportunity, the idea of providing access and opportunity. And um, and also, again, back to that point of not prejudging young people when they're 15, 16, 17, based on a set of standardized test scores. I can tell you from, I bombed my SAT twice uh, for, for different reasons. And, uh, you know, probably, uh, uh, you know, most, my guidance counselor probably thought I should never even go to college, right? So if she were alive today, I think she'd be shocked that I'm a president. But the, 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 the way it's ac actualized at, at Maryville, and it's this, not the statement, but the principles of the statement are embedded in our strategic plan and our vision statement and mission statement is, is very simple. There is a unique opportunity in this century, in the early part of this century, to use these digital tools to really blast apart the elitism of higher ed and provide access to millions and millions of people who normally wouldn't have gotten it. And usually those are people from underrepresented groups and people of color. And we can do that. We have the tools. We can make it happen. Because part of what we're able to do with this and we're driving towards at Maryville is a business model that, that makes uh, higher education affordable. Not 40, 50, 70, 80,000 a year, but really moving towards something that we believe we can make a reality, which is a subscription model of education, where you're paying a monthly fee to access the platforms and the educational experiences. We're not there yet, but hopefully we can, we can move in that direction. So, so there are a number of things we're doing to activate this. A couple of other things are you know, we, we have a, a very robust uh, data analytics operation. It's called mm -hmm. the uh, Office of Strategic Information. We've got, we've built a data lake where we can mm -hmm. extract data across the spectrum, both structured and unstructured uh, information designed for one purpose, the best educational experience for the student, a personalized one, and 24-7 life coaching and, and advising uh, that we do from our life coaching operation, which is a, a great group of full-time staff who do our advising and our life coaching. So it's really all these tools have to be focused on that simple goal. And, the, and if you want, it, and when I'm asked, you know, how do you measure Maryville's success? It's in graduation rate and it's in career outcome rate. I mean, that's, that's the best measure. Let me switch gears here, and uh, I'd like to talk with you a little bit more, more about the book. Um, and as I had said earlier, the title is 
pivot, uh, a vision for the, the new university. So um, what's the significance of the title and your use of the idea of pivoting? Well, uh, Joanne and I and, and, a, and a fantastic editor uh, at Credo, Emma, we, we sat down and started talking and thinking about uh, the the future university and and what what were the things that that were going to get universities to shift their approach and their outlook, not eliminate every but but shift it. Get them, you know, as you know and as I know, get universities that have spent 150 years looking at things one way and get them to shift the lens. And mm-hmm. and we toyed with a lot of different words and we came up with this idea of pivoting. So it was really about a university. Let's say it's uh, it's looking at a, a, a looking forward uh, f- with uh, with a with a lens of about thirty degrees wide. How do you get that university to turn and widen out the lens to look at one hundred and eighty degrees or even three hundred and sixty? So that's how pivot the the word pivot came about. And 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 then we began to really or at the same time. What were the things and what were the examples, university examples that we, that we, the case studies in the book, what are the things that demonstratively inf- reinforce and build that pivot? Uh, because you could argue that there are a hundred things, but what were the things that mattered the most? What did, what did all four of those institutions have in common that illustrated their own pivot? And that's how we came with, uh, upon the, the items that we, the, you know, the, cata- the areas that we looked at. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting-edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin.
President Lombardi, I'd like to dig deeper into what you refer to in your book as these essential pivot points for institutional transformation. Specifically, you write about the importance of courageous leadership and championing disruption, risk, and innovation. Both of these are clearly evident in the Maryville University story. Can you say more about why you believe these are so important and how do they actually play out? Well, um, I'll put this delicately. Um, The greatest impediment to innovation and change in higher ed is not the faculty and it's not the staff, it's leadership. It's leadership having the courage to take risks. It's leadership having the courage to, to uh, invest in, you know, as a bandwidth and connectivity to go on a one-to-one initiative to do these things. I've encountered far too many, I have many colleagues as presidents, so they're wonderful people, they're amazing, they're smart, but more than fair share, don't seem ready, willing to take those risks or to take those chances. So you got to have the courage to do these things. And the second part of that is, and I always say this, my job as president is to be disruptor in chief. My job is, uh, is not steady as she goes or no waves. My job is to challenge the fundamental assumptions of higher ed, of the, our institution, and, and force a dialogue around why can't we do this? You know, so, so think of it this way. Why can't we have 100% retention? Why can't we have 100% graduation rate? So challenging the institution to rethink assumptions, disrupting the existing uh, uh, thought processes is I think one of my most important roles as president. I would argue it's most, one of the most important roles of any university president particularly in this day and age. Now, the second uh, second point you mentioned, the student at the center, transforming learning for the future. And clearly we see that in the model you've put in place at Maryville, but can you speak speak to that maybe more broadly? Yeah, for, for 150 years or even more, maybe going back to the time of uh, Socrates and Plato, um, Uh, Education is faculty-centered. The faculty member is the center because they are the content experts and the students essentially, uh, metaphorically or reality, gather around that faculty member to learn. The reality is that the center of the learning should be the student and the faculty member is still vitally important, content knowledge and so forth, but they really should be facilitators on the side of a student's learning journey. And I think that's what we've done at Maryville. We've, we've pivoted, no pun intended, from you know, the, uh, the old phrase, you know, the faculty member isn't the sage on the stage, they're the guide on the side. And our faculty have embraced that element of the uh, pedagogy and learning process and, and do a fantastic job with it, which is a big reason for our success. And you put the student at the center by recognizing one fundamental assumption. All of us learn differently. All of us process information differently. We grasp things differently. I may, I may be, you know, I love to cook, but I can't read, I, I can't cook from a written menu or a recipe. I've got to watch somebody do it on YouTube and watch it over and over again before I can learn how to do it. We all learn differently. And if you start with that premise, then it's not one size fits all. It's actually, within a classroom, it's actually a series of almost individualized instructions. And technology allows you to do that. And uh, so that's, that's what it really means to put the student at the center. 
Now, this next one reminds me of uh, a president I used to work for in my first significant administrative role. And he was so fond of always saying, no margin, no mission, Melissa. So much so it was drilled into, into my being early on, which I'm very grateful for. And so running a university in the black, no margin, no mission. So for you, what does that mean? Um, universities are a business uh, and non not-for-profit is not a business strategy. It's simply a tax designation, right? <laughs> uh, you have to have money to reinvest in students, in the learning process, in the, in, the, in the technology, in all the things that you need to make this education powerful, robust, vibrant. You gotta have money to do it. And the money comes from running the institution in the black. And what that means is, for example, at Maryville, we never go into any budget year without at least a seven to $10 million contingency. Uh, so that in the event of COVID, pandemic, all these different things, we're never in a position, financial position behind the eight ball, we're always ahead of it. We've had uh, now 14 straight years of multi-million dollar surpluses. And then what, what do we do with that money? We reinvest that money into our educational mission. So if you've got the margin, you can invest and build on and grow that mission. And if you don't, then you're basically just, you know, living hand to mouth. Uh, and, and I always tell faculty and staff this at times when they ask about it, I say, you know, do you want to spend every month in your life wondering if you have enough money for groceries and everything else each month? Everybody says no. Well, neither does the university. The explosion of adult education, meeting society's needs. Well, the 57% uh, of everybody pursuing a degree now is over the age of 25. Mm -hmm. So the idea that college is for 18 to 22 year olds, that's actually the minority population of the educational journey. And I would argue that over the next 10 years, that, no, that percentage is, is gonna increase. Mm -hmm. the, va the majority of people who, who need education, skill development and retraining are adult learners. And, and now we have a modality that is online education that can reach adult learners in every aspect of, of whatever challenges they face in their lives, taking care of older parents and kids and jobs and so forth. We have students studying online in all 50 states uh, and we're able to provide them with opportunities that they might not heretofore have. And I'll give you an example. We started, and, and it's been one of our most robust programs, graduate nursing, master's and doctoral mm -hmm. degrees online. We, that was our first foray into the online environment. The majority of those students, those nurses, live in rural communities, at least 50 to 75 miles from the nearest university, nearest urban area. So not only are we providing them with an education, but we're also addressing a very important healthcare issue, which is the urban-rural divide in terms of healthcare availability in rural communities, because those nurses who get those degrees tend to stay in their town and provide even better medical care uh, for their neighbors. And so, so there are so many ways that adult education, universities can reach more and more adults uh, and, and enrich society and communities by doing so. And for universities, and there are some who just don't want to go into adult education, refuse to do it or whatever, for whatever reasons, they're really doing their, their region and their community a, a tremendous disservice, I think. Mm -hmm.
So the last pivot point uh, has to do with opportunity and inclusion, diversifying the campus culture. So what what do you mean by that? Well, the I don't have to tell any of the people watching and listening to this that this country has significant and historical and current issues with racial and social justice and opportunity. Um, universities have to be engines to address those issues. That means a thorough uh, approach to all DEI issues within the university. And that's not just recruiting students of color, which we've done successfully at Maryville, or staff or faculty and retaining them. That's important. That's just a first step. We also have to drill down into the biases that we all possess and have, uh, and we possess them on a number of factors, right? I have biases because I'm, I'm white. I also have biases as a man. I probably have biases because I'm, I'm an older man. You know, I probably, you know, in terms of looking at younger generations, et cetera, and, and different values, we all have biases. We need to pull those out, examine them, and then look at how are they, potentially adversely affecting our ability to reach po populations across the spectrum. And that work is a day in, day out, strat uh, 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 hard work. And we've got a whole team of people here. We've got a diversity and inclusion office in student life. Uh, I have a special assistant to the president for diversity, equity, and inclusion who works to, uh, reports directly to me. I have, we've got people across the spectrum and we're working on these issues all the time. Universities have to make that commitment. It's not like, and it's not every student's going to take a course and then you check that box. It's not everybody's going to go through a workshop and you check a box. It's really day in, day out, week to week uh, work and effort. And, um, and it can be very difficult at times for some people, but it also is a necessary commitment. Uh, and it has to be long term and it, and it has to start with the president. Uh, the president has to be able to articulate the importance of this, uh, no matter who the president is, uh, in every forum and at every turn. And so that's why uh, when Joanne and I were writing the book, we believed strongly and passionately that uh, no, no university can successfully pivot until they embrace that concept around DEI. Mm. So one of the other things that I find really helpful about your book are the profiles that you included. You profile four uh, institutional pivots, each of which reflects a compelling story about innovation and change. And so as an innovative leader and as someone who has studied other innovative leaders, what, what have you observed? What have you learned? What does it take? Uh, for a college or university leader to move an institution forward? How does one build and sustain an innovative culture? And then going back to what we talked about earlier, how do you deal with the resistance and the naysayers who we find on every, every college campus? There is innovation happening on every college campus right now today. As president or administrative, you may not be aware of it, but there are faculty and students and staff who are doing amazing things. The first thing you got to do is find them and and bring them together. Let them know that they're not alone out there, that that the, the innovative chem, chemistry teacher and the innovative educator over here and the innovative staff, that they're doing neat things. They might not be even aware of each other. Bring them together. Let them know that there's an innovative 
uh, creative, ideating community on your campus. And you have to bring them together. You have to reward them. You have to support them. And you also have to put a shield around them when, when some of the more naysaying people out there start to kind of criticize their, their, in, their innovative efforts or, oh, that'll never work and, you know, all those kinds of things that we've all heard over the years. That's the first thing. Then you have to uh, give them the opportunity to showcase what they're doing because in showcasing what they're doing, they start getting the attention of other people. And let, let's take faculty. Other faculty start going, oh, wow. That is kind of cool. That's interesting. I, I might want to try that. And then they start approaching these people and say, hey, can you help me with how to use the iPad? Can you help me with that? So you can generate without any kind of policy change or you can generate an innovative energy and a growing energy. Then you've got to give it uh, uh, real uh, oxygen, right? You've got, to, you've got to really invest in it. I'll give you an example. You know, we were talking about the fact that our, our faculty needed to learn how to use these digital tools. They're emerging, not reject them, but learn how to incorporate and use them, which takes skill and takes ability. And we had a bunch of faculty who were already doing it. So we said, look, how are we going to do this? And, and I, I think we were at a senior staff meeting, and I finally said, look, the old days of telling faculty or staff, hey, we want you to learn something. We'll buy you a, a stale sandwich and, you know, and you do it over lunch. <laughs> That's so why don't we really invest it? So we added two weeks to every faculty member's salary. Uh, two weeks, so now instead of nine month, nine and a half month and so on. And basically we said there's a week in May, right after graduation, and a week in August, right before orientation. And that's gonna be faculty development week. And the Center for Teaching and Learning, which is a faculty run center here, are going to organize and structure the whole thing. But the focal point, at least the centerpiece of it, is going to be this digital uh, use of these digital tools. The faculty embraced it. They loved it. Obviously, we made a significant financial investment by adding two weeks to everyone's salary. And now it's part of the institutional culture. The faculty participation in those weeks has consistently been in the low to mid 90% uh, percent participation, engagement. And now they love it because it's also, you know, a collegial social engagement. They're doing it with each other, peers. Uh, it's peer to peer. We're not, you know, it's not me going in there and trying to, or anybody else. It's 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 in that great, comfortable peer to peer colleague environment, and it works. So there are a number of different strategies you can take. And again, going back to, you just have, uh, frankly, you just have to have the courage to do it. Uh, you have the courage to 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 do these things, and then you have to have the courage to question assumptions people have that. You know, because the, the, back to the naysayers, well, this won't work, or I don't think the students are going to want this, or I've always done this. So what you have to sort of work against that. But here's the key. We didn't force anybody. Anybody who didn't want to use the iPad in class, we said, fine, don't use it. You, don't have, you know, we're going to give you one. If you don't want to use it, don't use it. What happened, and you, you already know this, what happened is the students gravitated towards these digital experiences and the I faculty agree. that were skeptical realized, I'm gonna have to do this. I, I, I you know, my student, and, and it, it spread and, it, and now it's part of the institutional culture. Mm, those are great, great strategies. And the whole notion of 
uh, growing it from the ground up and in a grassroots kind of way, and then incentivizing uh, those who uh, step up, I think is, is just brilliant. So now I wanna ask you a personal question. We're coming to the, uh, to the end of our time, but you are obviously a very courageous leader, the chief disruption officer. I love that title. Somebody who is actively championing risk innovation. How do you how do you sustain yourself in this regard? Um, are there some things you do to stay to stay fresh? Uh, yeah, I I, I read uh, voraciously, but not academic papers or journals or whatever. I mean, I love to read history. I'm a history nut, so I read mm -hmm. a lot of biographies and history. But I read a lot about innovation. Um, I, uh, we created a position a few years ago called the Vice President of Strategic Trends. And this person's entire job, pre-pandemic and then during the pandemic virtually, travel around the country and, and, and learn all kinds of innovative trends. The only stipulation is uh, he can't go to any academic conferences. Uh, this is, <laughs> you, you know, because we want to learn, you know, so it's South by Southwest and all these different amazing sure. things that are going on out there. He brings all that back and he kind of, he and I triage it together. And then we use that to, to incorporate elements into our strategic plan and approach. So for, number one, it's to stay intellectually curious about all this stuff. I'm not a tech guy. I, I'm, not, I'm not knowledgeable about tech. I mean, I always say I, I have, my knowledge is about a thousand feet wide and about six inches deep, right? Uh, but but you got to continually fuel that that ideation and curiosity. Um, so that's one way. Um, uh, you know, God bless everyone. During the pandemic, I don't know how any of us uh, recharge or even if we're recharging batteries. I mean, I I think my battery right now is like uh, when your phone is down to twenty percent and you plug it in to get an extra five percent, and then you got to <laughs> plug it in. You know, it feels that way sometimes. Uh, but, and then in other ways, for me, it's about, um, and, and, and this is what, one of the things that was so hard about the pandemic, being around students energizes me. Uh, it reminds me of what we're here for and what we're doing. So now that we brought the students back this year and we're having a great experience and knock on wood and all those things, we're really moving through the pandemic very effectively and, and healthy, frankly. Um, being around the students uh, is is energizing and re-energizing uh, in in so many profound ways. It's hard to describe. I actually filled in and and gave a talk in a couple of classes, uh, one this week and one last week, to help out some uh, faculty who are who are not able to, and uh, that also was great. It reminded me how difficult teaching is, though. Uh, I was I was tired at the end of those sessions, but uh, but it was uh, energizing. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. So we're going to end with a signature question we ask of all of our guests. And the question is this, as a student of higher education, what are your thoughts about the future? And what do you believe needs to be on the radar of all college and university leaders right now? I believe the future, of, as we move through what's going to be a rocky three, four, five years here, we're looking at a golden age of higher education in this century, or at least until 2050. But here's the difference. It's, it's not going to be a golden age 
that, that, that perhaps it was uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Here's what it's going to look like, in my opinion. Uh, a young person is going to enter into a university environment. They're going to have uh, an incredible comprehensive profile learning diagnostics of who they are and how they learn and, and, and how they need to consume information and knowledge. We're going to facilitate that and we're going to use artificial intelligence, data analytics, we're going to use digital humans which we're using at Maryville now. We've deployed four of them already. We're going to be using that to provide 24-7, 365 comprehensive education, career advice, guidance, and that's going to be a lifelong journey. We're going to be with them throughout their entire lives. They're not going to spend forty or 50000 a year on that. They're really going to be investing uh, probably, you know, on a subscription level. They're going to be paying a monthly fee like Netflix, but they're going to be doing it for the better part of their lives because they're going to constantly need to access the educational platforms that we provide. It's going to be a time when lifelong learning is going to be a true, a truth and a reality. Uh, and, and, and when that happens, people can, a student can go through their entire career or careers, switch around, try new things, do new things, and we're always going to be there with them to facilitate that and support them. And, and I think that means we're going to have a golden age. I think there are going to be millions of people going to college in various forms over the next few years that never would have been able to go before. So in that sense, I'm very optimistic. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.